as the candlelighters did such an excellent job of reminding us, we are in the second week of Advent of four, and uh, we are continuing the sermon series that contemplates and tries to meditate on some of those words we've already heard in our songs. What does it mean that Jesus is Emmanuel? What does it mean that God is with us? especially in light of how desperately people longed for that presence of God in the past. We're going to continue that this morning by looking at a story from 1 Kings chapter 19, the first 18 verses. The words will be on the screen behind me. Otherwise, if you'd like to, you can open up your pew Bibles in front of you to page number 354 and follow along there. Again, this is from 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, and I'll read the first 18 verses. As we did last week, we're going to jump in the middle of a story, but I'll catch us up uh, during the message. Scripture says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go out and stand in the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I start in the same way I began last week. In many ways, the season of Advent begins in the dark. And last week, we talked about how in darkness, we are lost for direction. We stumble around. We can't always see where we are going. And using the story of Moses, when he felt lost for direction after the Israelites had rebelled against him, God brought his presence, revealing it to Moses, which brought Moses that confidence, knowing that God's presence brings direction. This week, we continue to reflect upon darkness, but a different kind of darkness, an emotional darkness. You've also all heard it already in the songs that we've been singing and the words that Pastor Lucas has used to introduce us, that this is a season of joy. It's supposed to be a celebration, a time of happiness and peace. And yet, as far too many of us know far too well, that especially during this season, it can be a season of darkness. We know we have to buy presents for our children, but we also know that the finances have been very tight, and so we wonder, how do we both buy these presents but continue to pay the electric bill and the gas bill? And so we have that anxiety, that darkness of our financial situation that looms over us. It's a season where you're supposed to, and you see the movies and the stores advertising to go out and buy these presents for your loved ones and anticipate the presents that your loved ones are going to buy for you. But for you, it just is a highlight of the fact that you don't have those loved ones. The loneliness that's hard enough to bear throughout the year just feels that much more strong on you because you don't have those people that are buying presents for you or that you buy presents for. And for some, that's because you've never had that person. Others, it's because that person that used to help define this season, that made it a season of joy and celebration, is no longer with us. And so the darkness of that loneliness clings to us during this season. 
For some, it's the end of a year. And you look back over this year and you think of all of the things you wanted to be, to become, and to do over this past year. But now you look at where you are and you realize that the changes you promised you were going to make, the sins you were no longer going to commit, the life you were going to live, the things you were going to achieve, haven't happened. And you look over your life and say, what am I doing? Am I just spinning my wheels? Do I have any purpose? And that darkness can sit in us. Or there's the darkness of having that family that is happy to buy presents for you, but don't want anything to do with what happens here on Christmas. They'll get your gifts, but they will ignore the gift of Jesus Christ. And they've wandered far from where you tried to raise them in the faith. And the darkness of the anxiety of where they are going spiritually looms over you. As you know, I could just go on and on about the different ways that we struggle with emotional darkness during this season, how though it's supposed to be a season of joy, many of us can find ourselves in that darkness longing for hope and for purpose and for comfort. Well, that emotional darkness is something that many of the characters of the Bible understood, including the prophet Elijah, as we saw in the story that we read for this morning. I, let me set that background just a little bit. So first of all, we are approximately 650 years after the last story that we read with Moses. And in those 650 years, the Israelite nation had completed their journey to the promised land. They had conquered it and established themselves as a nation. They had their own leadership with kings that ruled over them, their own territory. And the Lord had blessed them with this land with the idea that they, as his people, would be a light to the other nations. That as the nations around them looked at Israel and how blessed they were in living in this land, they would say, those Israelites have something that we need. And they would be drawn to a relationship with the Lord because of the light that Israel showed to them. That was what was supposed to happen. But of course, that was, as we find out, rarely what did happen. Most of the time... Instead of being a distinct nation that attracted others to them, the Israelites looked at the other nations and they said, it's so hard to worship our God. Look how fun it is to worship those idols, to adore those things that you can see, to be able to have all of these different options. And instead of being distinct and worshipers of God, they were pulled toward the same gods of the false gods of the nations. And a lot of that came to a head during the reign of Ahab, one of the most wicked kings over Israel. Absolutely nothing like the King David, who was a man after God's own heart. Instead, King Ahab was a man with a very selfish heart. That rather than worshiping and glorifying the Lord, the one true God, he, along with his wife, the wicked queen Jezebel, led the nation in worship of Baal, the false idol. 
to the point where they would even kill, pursue, and destroy the prophets of the Lord. But even in those dark times, God sent his prophets with that message to repent and to return to him. And Elijah was the prophet that Ahab hated the most. Just before the story we read, Elijah had arranged a bit of a demonstration by God's command on the top of Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal had built an altar, and for hours and hours, they cried out, they danced around, they cut themselves, they wept and screamed, trying to get Baal's attention to light his altar. But of course, nothing happened. And then, after the one man, Elijah, said a simple prayer, God brought fire from heaven, virtually exploding his altar into flames, proving that he was the alive, the true, the right God, the only God that had power and strength. The people respond very well. And you would think that such a display would change everything for the nation of Israel. You would think that surely all hearts would turn toward the Lord, every knee would bow, and people would repent and recognize the error of their ways. But that didn't happen. And as we pick up the story, instead of repenting and realizing the clear error of her ways, Queen Jezebel threatens Elijah's life and promises to kill him within the next 24 hours. Now, a fake God is actually a lot easier to defend than a very real, very wicked woman with authority. And in fear, Elijah runs. Jezebel can't take his life. She can't win. Elijah goes from the north, where Mount Carmel is in Israel, to the southern point, traveling about 120 miles. And then leaving his servant behind, he goes another day's journey, leaving the promised land that seems to have no room for a prophet like God as he is. And going into the wilderness, Elijah lays under a broom tree, and finally we hear from him. Elijah's done. He says in verse 4, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Emotionally, Elijah is obviously in a very dark place, so dark that death seems to be the best option for him at this point. Now, biblical commentators debate quite a bit over how we should view this form of Elijah. Some suggest that this is a selfish, self-centered Elijah who, who is straying from God, who has suddenly lost the faith that had been demonstrated on Mount Carmel himself. Other commentators suggest that he's righteously upset that it's not about him but it's about the fact that God has been abandoned by his people and he's grieving over the fact that God has been dismissed and ignored I, I tend to lead more toward that second option but either way it's clear 
Israel is done with God. And therefore, Elijah is done with them, and he's also done with life. But even in the darkness, God is not done with Elijah. God first comforts and feeds Elijah. Jezebel had sent her messenger with a threat. Now God says his messenger, angel, that's what angel means, in order to bring not only comfort, but to feed Elijah. To feed him just like he fed the Israelites, sustaining them both for the journey ahead, the journey that it was and is too great to do in his own strength. And as directed by the angel, that journey became 40 days and 40 nights, another parallel to the 40 years of wandering in the desert, to Horeb, the mountain of God. But that mountain is also known as Mount Sinai, which is important because Mount Sinai, as we will remember, is where God led his people after the exodus from Egypt. Mount Sinai was where God renewed the covenant with this nation, promising once again, I will be your God and you will be my people. The promises affirmed to us in baptism. And Mount Sinai, as we learned last week, was where Moses had met with God after those Israelites had so quickly failed in that promise. And yet God, in his presence promised Moses he would go with him and that he would not abandon these people. And again, while the people clearly failed to keep their end of the covenant over and over again, especially in the next 650 and ongoing years, God doesn't make promises lightly. Which is why, again, some commentators that I tend to agree with don't see this question that Elijah is asked as, what in the world are you doing here, Elijah? A criticism. And said they see that question from God as an invitation. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, look at this place. Look at where you are. Do you remember what happened here? Do you know, do you remember the promises that I made? Maybe the Israelites have forgotten, but I haven't. Elijah's answer points out the fact that the people have all left God, and despite Elijah's best efforts, all that he's received for himself is a bounty on his head instead of repentance. And into that need, once again, as he did as we saw last week, God to comfort Elijah, reveals his presence. As he appeared to Moses, God, in this dark time of Elijah's life, shows up and reveals his presence. And while Elijah is in the cave, God's presence goes before him, and there's this huge wind that explodes, a storm that's literally blowing apart the rocks. But as powerful and mighty as that storm is, we're told that God's not in that great wind. Right after that, there's an earthquake. The very foundations of the mountain become like jelly under the feet of Elijah. And this powerful force that shakes the foundations of the earth 
is experienced. But once again, despite the might of that force, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then... After the earthquake, there's this fire that erupts. And we can only imagine it's very much like the fire that had shot from heaven on Mount Carmel. Now arrives this great threat, this heat, this flame. But again, the Lord was not in the fire. And then finally, Elijah hears a low whisper. And when he hears that, he covers his face and he steps out of the cave to experience the presence of God. In a story that's full of repetitions and uh, doublets, if you will, I can't think of the term, we have a repetition of the question that that God asks, the same one and a response that Elijah gives, which is verbatim, word for word, once again the same, but... Now, after his appearance, God reminds Elijah that he's not alone. That there are many thousands of others that haven't bent the knee to Baal. And then he also sends Elijah on a new mission. It is a mission to go back because the work is not yet done. Yes, there may be a king on the throne of Israel, but God is the king maker. And so God sends Elijah to anoint a new king over the nation of Syria and a new king for Israel. And furthermore, Elijah will anoint a new prophet, a prophet that will continue the work that Elijah had begun. Yes, Elijah had worked hard. Yes, there was much more work to be done, but back at Mount Sinai, Elijah heard again the promise that God was there. That God's presence would still be with his people and therefore God would be victorious. Israel would not become a nation of Baal worshipers. God was their God. They were his people. But no, Elijah wouldn't see the end of that battle and be able to claim that final victory. That work would have to continue by others. But the victory would come. And as time marched on, they were often dark. Many more kings would come and try to express their own power, their own strength, and lead in their own wisdom, and they would fail often. And many more prophets would be raised up to warn, to call, to implore the people, return to the Lord, because that is where we find our direction and hope. And those prophets would be ignored, they would be persecuted, and they would often be killed. And then, as we celebrated Advent, about 850 years after Elijah, the king would come. It wasn't with loud parades and flashes of light. It wasn't with power that the world expected. Yes, angels did announce the arrival of his birth, but it was an arrival announced to poor shepherds in the field, not proclaimed from the palaces of their day. Instead, without much fanfare, like a low whisper into the world, the word of God became incarnate 
As promised, he was born in Bethlehem, born in a stable and placed in a manger, silent to most of the world. And this Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. And while living among us, he too knew dark times. We know that at least once, when one of the people that he loved passed away, he too grieved that loss. We know that he endured the continual and regular criticism, ridicule, and questions about his identity and what authority that he taught with, not just from those that considered themselves his enemies, but even from the very friends, his disciples, that he surrounded himself with. And he was honest with them and with us, saying that if he, as the leader, suffered persecution, ridicule, and harassment, that we too, his followers, should expect the very same. And he knew the darkest of times. When hanging on the cross, the Father forsook him, rendering from him the cry, quoting from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has your presence been removed from me? And yet he went through those dark times because he had been sent on a mission. A mission from the Father to endure those trials and pains, to offer himself on that cross so that we might have hope. And after dying on the cross on the third day, he rose again from the grave. Now you would think that someone coming back from the dead would change everything, that after such a clear demonstration of his power and divinity, that all people would have their, their hearts changed and would bend their knee to the glory of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. But that didn't happen. There are still those that fight against God and his lordship. There are many who deny Christ and seek to destroy his servants. And the battle continues. The world is still broken and painful. And there will be times when the battle is emotionally hard. There will be times when we grieve because the cause of Christ is being challenged and harassed or when living in a sinful and broken world just feels like too much. When Cor, when any of us were baptized at the baptismal font, although God says you are my child, that was not a promise that you will live a pain-free, easy life. When it felt like too much for Elijah, God fed him, God comforted him. He sent Elijah back to where he had started after revealing his presence, and his presence brought hope for Elijah. When it feels like too much for us, we can remember that God, that Christ is with us. We can be comforted in the fact that he understands our pain. We can be comforted by his victory 
over death and knowing that as hard it is, is to say goodbye on this earth to those that we love because of his resurrection, we can look forward to that day of being reunited with them. And then we can go back to where it all began, to the baptismal font, and we can remember that though we are often unfaithful, God does not make his promises lightly. And he continues to say to me and to you, I am your God, you are my child, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And then we can hear again, as Jesus ascended to heaven, that incredible promise that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. And then we can go with the mission that he has sent us on, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then we go with this great promise, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. When we see, experience emotional darkness in this world, what a joy to know that Jesus came to be our light, our comfort, who sends us on a mission with the incredible promise that my presence will go with you, and therefore you can know joy. As we cling to that joy, that light of this season, let's bow our heads together. Lord God and Heavenly Father, in this dark world, we not only recognize the things that cause us pain, but we confess that we have participated in far too much of it ourselves. That we have hurt our own lives and damaged relationships because of our sin. That in our rebelling against you and in our desire to be like the world, we have strayed from what you have called us to be. And we recognize that in our straying, what we deserve from you is to walk away from us. And yet we cling to the joy of the promise that you are God with us. That you sent your son to be present with us and that your presence gives us hope. Lord, give those that need hope that need that comfort through this season, a sense of joy in you. And may we be your people going forth and participating in your mission, bringing that light that we have received ourselves to a world that is so dark and continues to hunger for you. May we always point them toward you. This we pray in the name of Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Amen.